Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce Ryan Kruger. Kruger is the co-founder and CEO of Freedom Day Solutions, a family-owned and operated financial advisory firm out of Houston, Texas. He writes excellent blog posts on his site that I always enjoy. He wrote a chapter in the book, How I Invest My Money. And he's also starting an ETF, ticker symbol M-B-O-X. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. He's one of the most entertaining and informative followers on FinTwit. But more than that, he's just going to be one of the most nicest and most genuine people you're going to find on Twitter. And he can be found at Ryan Kruger ROI, where you can find him posting about everything from gratitude and sliced bread patents to dividends and disruptive technology. Ryan, welcome to the show. Wow, that was the kindest intro from one of my favorite people. Um, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, th- thank you for joining us. And, and for those who don't know, like th- I enjoy my interactions on Twitter very much. And I enjoy everyone who, who DMs me and, and comments on my post. And I love the back and forth. But there's maybe maybe two or three people who from Twitter who I consider real life friends. And Ryan, you're one of those people. So I'm, I'm thrilled to, to have you on today. Well, you and I and our relationships are a great example of the, the, of what's good out there. And, and, and if you live in a world of abundance and I'm, I, look, I'm a digital dinosaur. I, I <laughs> will never forget walking back in after my intern asked me to post something on Twitter for the first time. And this is only a couple of years ago. Right. And I had to ask him, I, I, what is a notification? <laughs> I and and somebody had taken a, one of the blog posts and shared it, and um, all of a sudden I had a, a lot of a lot of new friends, but but a very few, like you just said, who there's a true interaction back and forth. And I've never had, and I, maybe I'm an oddball, but I've never had a bad experience. So for all the the negative, I guess you can find that if you want it too. But I have nothing but positive experience in sharing, um, and I am and I, this relationship I owe it to that. So I, I'm grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Ryan, how about we just start? Tell us about your career. I know you started on Wall Street, um, but your story about how you got from New York to Houston uh, is, is very interesting. So why don't you just share that if you don't mind? Well, I, I interviewed somebody 15 minutes ago just before jumping on here, and I, I made my confession and my fondest wish for her or anybody is that they will never have to use a resume again. Right. Um, and that comes from a very biased point of view, Matt. I never, little barroom trivia on me, I never produced and never had a resume. Um, so with zero other interests out of school, I was a rabid um, stock market nerd from junior high on. That's what I wanted to do and figure out. I was immediately told we have zero interest in hiring somebody without a network or with no experience out of college. So I was refused the interview. And so I never had the, the, the need to produce a resume, but I, I wrote what I call my, to this day, a Hail Mary letter. Um, not advice, doesn't always work, but in case it helps anybody out there at least be a little more relentless, I, I just simply ask if I could come and visit with anybody at the office. And I very politely 
was able, thankfully, to a, a kind gentleman there, able to do that. And I never left. And I agreed to start at the minimum, start in the mailroom. And I spent the next uh, 14 years at what was then the largest global bank brokerage. I was on the professional money management side very early on. So I was able to research stocks, manage the discretionary portfolio. So thankfully, and a lot of luck, um, to not have to go through a whole bunch of different jobs and mazes. And that's not for everybody. I think a lot of folks will benefit from a host of different experiences. For me, portfolio management was um, what I wanted to do. And thankfully, I was able to learn a lot early on. And then in 2006, uh, launched our own firm and left. And that's where I still sit to this day. And now we're super excited and fortunate for the next phase to be able to open up a couple of offices outside of just Houston and, and turn this into a national national brand. Uh, excellent, excellent. So now uh, tell us about this new DETF. The symbol is MBOX, and I'm sure you can tell us what the significance of that ticker symbol, but like, tell us like, yeah, just get, get, give us your, why the need for another ETF? Um, and like, what are you, what's the philosophy underlining it? And, uh, and, and how did it get its name? Great uh, question, as you always do, straight to the heart. And if people are, are, are always surrounded by your politeness, I, I will add the directness of your question. There is absolutely <laughs> no need for another ETF. Let me be clear. There are too many of them. I am, my entire career of 25 years, we've never launched a product. We've never owned an outside product, a fund, a fund of funds, any of these complicated solutions of any kind. So the answer to your question, I had zero desire to join in that complexity or confusion, um, but because of the advisory side of our practice and because of humbly learning for all those years, what good old fashioned families investors biggest need was, I think there was a problem to solve. So I wanted to solve a problem, not create a product. And in our opinion, that is going to be an increasing need for rather than another growth ETF or income ETF or allocation or more confusion and more questions, I think people are going to need growth of income, not more choices for growth or income. So to answer your other question, MBOX is our polite tip of the cap to the folks who made this possible that hired us over the last several years to give them good old fashioned mailbox money, as we call it down here in Texas. Um, and that concept um, <laughs> needs to be more universally understood. And yeah, it's simple and it's old fashioned, but you know what? Some simple and old fashioned things stick around for pretty good reasons. The name of it is Freedom Day Dividend, which means a lot to us because we want to completely turn upside down this notion of retirement planning um, and a date and an asset number, rather the day when income to that mailbox is in excess of invoices going out. So that is our definition of Freedom Day. And I do think it's achievable because I've seen it. Excellent. Excellent. And so let's um, let's talk about your philosophy for a little bit, because you, I, I've heard you before. And I mean, I, I like I've read your material and I followed you. But uh, for, for those who are not familiar with you, like why why is that so important? Why like why why is getting those those more figurative checks in the mailboxes like more important than like 
a, a, uh, a growing portfolio or things like that? Like, why do you consider that so important? Well, um, I, I never think, and I think this is a mistake for a lot of investors and portfolio managers, certainly in the business of selling investments. And, and that's not what either one of us do. We're sharing ideas, but I, this should never be about what I think or my prediction or my belief system or my bias. Um, I happen, the answer to that question happens to be as a result of simply learning. So for 25 years, I've had the opportunity to manage aggressive growth portfolios. I've had the opportunity to manage a long short hedge fund with the most complicated options, futures. I've, I've touched and seen and done it all. Um, and thankfully, all successfully, and I, I don't say that to brag because I closed some of those down. The, the reason is that simplicity was the holy grail. In my opinion, there's one metric that has stood the time for 200 years. And I just learned. I, I kept digging and there's nothing in the world wrong with and why do you think I, I listen and follow you? I want some growth assets. The, the need we feel and, and the biggest problem for the most number of people that I think is hardest to solve, though, is rising income streams where you don't continue to have to speculate and grow assets more and more. And then one day um, and, and the real problem out there, I think, for financial planners is going to be, I think, this withdrawal rate from growing assets is in significant trouble over the next 40 years. I and mean, we've had tailwinds at our back from a bond market and fixed income for those plans that we're not going to have over the next 40 years. And I'm also biased by learning and humble to know that stocks don't always go up either. I mean, the day I got married um, to, to probably the biggest secret of, of my success and the most important, either one of our plans, as I always say, is who we marry. The day I got married, the stock market was exactly where it started 12 years later. So the big, big answer to your question is what if people are counting on and they're not in the net accumulation, aggressively saving, and it doesn't matter. I've got all the time in the world at some point, whether it be near halftime of somebody's life or when they eventually want to be reunited with their money, they're going to need the ability to generate free cash flow. And, and if that's one of the simplest and best ways to look at a company, why not look at an investment account and demand that of your own plan the same way we know works for companies? And I don't think enough investors are asking themselves that question. Where's my free cash flow? Right, right. So like, I mean, and to your point about like getting married and then like 12 years later, the stock market was the same place. Like, so at the depths of the 0809 crisis, if, if you're retiring you know, then, and you have seen this like huge drawdown in your portfolio, but oftentimes those companies, if they're paying a dividends, they did not see, uh, you know, if you're just, if you're, if you're living off the income from those dividends, you were, uh, you're doing just fine. Yeah. The, the, that chart that I keep on the corner of my desk for a lot of different reasons. Um, and, and next to a, one of my many favorite trading quotes is no matter how elegant the design occasionally check the results. Um, and, and that lesson is, no, the stock market doesn't always go up. And there are a lot longer periods of time than most bulls or bears like to really think about that it goes nowhere. And I think that's the most unasked question. It's not a prediction, by the way. It's just a real, it's, it's the math that we need to solve for. So over that period of time, one of many different stocks hiding in plain sight that, you know, for all the, the correct concerns about 
no active manager being able to outperform an index, the S&P being the most popular one. I just and hit that, you know, very serious and, and valid concern right off the bat is rather than promising any sort of track record to make a prediction, I would just look at the parent company of that index, S&P Global, that raised its own dividend every single year during that period where the S&P that everybody was staring at did nothing, let alone periods where it goes down a lot. There's a lot of investors that aren't even familiar with the parent company itself. So do I believe in passive investing? Absolutely. I want to own the whole store. <laughs> right, 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 right. So a lot of times growth investors, they criticize stocks that pay dividends, like saying that companies that pay dividends, they don't have other ways to invest their money, implying that stocks that pay dividends, like their growth days are over. Like, how would you respond to that? I was one of those, Matt. I, I, I think that's a, a valid concern. And I think there are a lot of companies where that is absolutely correct. Um, and, and the real, the work where we started rolling up our sleeves to start separating companies no different than you do on the growth side is, all right, which companies are aggressively growing their dividend? And yet there are companies that are making more cash than they can put to work. They are investing. So I want to look at R&D. Are they reinvesting? Are they aggressively adding future growth? Are they paying down debt or buying back shares and they still have enough left over to reward stakeholders? Um, I think it's a valid concern. There's That's why there's so many dividend companies I want nothing to do with. But the best clue I've ever found and all of those metrics, and we still use three dozen to score every one of the stocks, is if you're increasing that dividend consistently, that shows me two things, improvement in a company and how they think of and treat stakeholders, which, yeah, it's an old-fashioned idea anymore, but I actually think now more than ever when there's a lot of questions about what is real and in investing, never before have those questions been crazier than right now in my career, a dividend is real. I can hold it in my hands for over 200 years. That matters a lot to people that some of them don't want to ask all these questions about the stock market. And that is a simplifying clue, unlike any I found. You know, one of the, when, when I was early on and making several mistakes in investing, one of, one of the mistakes I made at a certain point after getting burned by like story stocks and things like that is I was like looking at dividends. And I thought, oh, this is way easier. Uh, then like trying to find out like what the next big stock is. I'll just pick the stocks with the highest dividend yields. Like well, that's, that's easy, right? So if the stock's paying 8%, just mark it down. I got 8% returns like going in to perpetuity. Um, why is that not a good strategy? Why can't investors just pick like the stocks with the highest dividend yields? There's a lot of reasons. One of the simplest way to describe it, I, I call it my... Don Vito Corleone, <laughs> discipline, what have I done to earn such generosity? Um, those yields, no different than a lot of other businesses, if you think about it, if they are the ones flipping the signs on the side of the street, trying to attract your attention, um, I'd rather find the store or the restaurant right behind them that isn't advertising and has a line out the, the there's high yields that are not growing um, are, are are one to they're, they're they're not very exciting and you're right and there's not a lot of potential 
oftentimes they're the biggest red flag for underlying issues. They may be funding that dividend with debt, not growth at all. And that's one of the ways that we would separate. And I think even some of the very popular um, dividend strategies, um, the most popular of all being the aristocrats and the dividend kings, that one of the many reasons that we launched this ETF is I think there's a better way. Um, some of those traditions of just keeping the dividend for the sake of selling customers that story, um, if you just pull back even little bit of the curtain and do the math of if that dividend is growing from debt, not operating revenues, that's a problem. If there's no free cash flow and they're sending you free cash flow, that dividend is not sustainable. So we look at not just the payout ratio, which is a popular measure from earnings, but we would much rather find the payout ratio from free cash, which is a little harder stress test on a dividend. And we want plenty of cushion to not just support the dividend, but that it grows. And, and one of the most misleading parts, uh, another secret hiding in, in plain sight, Matt, is for, you know, one of my favorite charts is you take a popular dividend yield of 4%, and a very boring only 2% dividend that's growing faster and show the crossover point where you're actually getting more as a stakeholder in your hand. And I sent you one of those where it's like, you end up with more money from a company that was only yielding 2% over 10 years than one that was consistently yielding higher. And that's very confusing to a lot of folks unless they follow the very simple mailbox math of the actual dividend payments held in your hand. And you can make more money from a low yielder if it's growing faster. Absolutely. Uh, you brought up you brought up payout ratio. Explain that what it what what that is uh, for like investors who or or people who might not be familiar with that. Like, what is that? Well, so you know, in a lot of these simple online services that that folks and some of your uh, subscribers are the most are more sophisticated than a lot of analysts I left behind on Wall Street, and I really do mean that sincerely. I mean, they're going to be able to find easily, you know, payout ratio. Um, and, and typically and traditionally, that's from earnings. So I want to be real clear here. And so and so you could see, frankly, some of these big yielding companies, they may have a 500 percent payout ratio. That's a problem. That means they're paying out five times in a dividend of what they are having earned income. So if it's 50 percent payout ratio, then they're paying out a dividend that is very well supported, right? They have $2 of income and they're only paying out a dollar. That's a 50% earnings payout. What I do that takes a little bit more work that's not quite as readily available is I just want to make it from free cash flow. So the same math, if $2 in free cash flow is coming in and if they're paying out a dollar of free cash flow, that would be a 50% payout from free cash. And if you have an aggressive growing dividend and a low payout ratio, you have a really good clue of future potential, especially if it keeps growing for more increases. And, and that's, the, that's where the real magic of mailbox math occurs, future increases of dividend, not just the current yield. Did that answer your question on, on payout? Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. That's one of the best, yeah. easiest red flags to look for. There's plenty of very popular, widely held companies um, some of them, some of the biggest holdings in some of these dividend ETFs that have unsustainable payout ratios, they will be cut. And that's, that is, we're striking at like one of the, the, the heart of like my biggest criticism of the dividend aristocrat 
uh, like Strategy or the Dividend King, like which are just companies that have paid like a rising or have raised their dividend for 25 straight years or 50 straight years. Um, is that a lot of times when you look at those lists, you'll 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 see some of those companies. You're like, that company seems like it's kind of struggling now. And, and instead of just blindly buying it, you know, if you look at like some of those raises over the last several years, they'll like raise it. They'll, they'll give it a nominal raise so that oh they raised it by one one cent this year and or two cents the next year or, or something like that when really like uh they're just trying to like like you, they they feel the need to keep that that strategy going because they want these investors in, in their company but at the same time like they, they would the business would be much better served by even like one just stop raising their dividend or you know two like even cutting their dividend to invest in like other areas uh, that they need to. That's a that's a great clue that you just hit on the head. If you see a one percent or even less than one percent dividend pay raise, you should immediately know that's for show, right? And 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 that starts to pull the curtain back on on one of our bigger um, differences, I suppose, with a lot of the professional community talking about how wide is the moat. And some of these traditional companies that have a big advantage and they've always had a great company and they have a big advantage. They have a big dividend. That is less interesting to me than the direction of the mode. So a big dividend or a big company that is no longer growing, you know, the thing about moats is they can spring a leak too. And you can start to see that in the numbers. And I just, am a, I just watch the math. I don't try to predict futures of businesses, but you can start to see erosion in moats. And I'm much more interested in a lower yielding dividend with a big increase than I am a fat dividend, a big moat with, as you just said, a very tiny increase just to keep the tradition alive. That, that comparison right there um, is, is a giant difference. And the other thing about big moats is they attract crowds, whether it be competition that won't allow it to continue or investors have crowded into that mode and they've bid up shares and they're too expensive. So I'm much more interested in the direction of the moat than the size of the moat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about some of your holdings in the, uh, in the ETF and just looking at like your top holdings can't help, but notice your, your first holding is EOG resources, which is an energy company. So is this just like a, a Texas guy who likes energy or, or, or what's the story here? What, why is EOG the top holding in your portfolio? Well, so, and, and I, I don't have a cowboy hat. Um, I've never <laughs> worked in a field. And I've actually offended many, many of my oil buddies in, down here in Texas. I didn't own energy companies for over a decade. Um, it was very clear that there was a secular decline and, and a lot of problems. And as we just talked about, a lot of the math made it really clear, um, especially on some of the bigger ones, that they were fueling, whether it be dividends or growth projects with debt, and their operating revenues weren't there. And there was a lot of problems. Um, but no different than obvious advantages, problems can get really crowded, too. And it became so obvious that in my 25-year career, I've never seen an industry with such obvious questions and issues at the same time, because of ESG, literally forcing institutional shareholders to sell, whether it was at the worst time or the bottom or not, put that aside, but forced selling should be just as curious as everybody knows about bubbles and how they inflate from 
buying without questions. Well, if you're selling without questions too, at the very least, I pulled up my chair with a sharp pencil and, and re-examined some of the businesses. So to answer your question, this was not a bet and we made it a largest position. Um, I, I think anybody's largest position, if they're doing this on their own, should be the result of an output, not an input. So the portfolio starts, re, starts balanced. And the fact that you're seeing right out of the gates that it's a little bit larger than others, and you're correct currently, um, I think that, and I'm just, the, take if none of my predictions that I'm about to share or, or curiosities work at all, the math still suggests that there's some really, really good free cash flow dividend growth stories sitting right under our noses that we've completely ignored and energy went down to something like 2% of the S&P 500. I mean, literally given up for dead. I, I wonder, um, and one of our projects over the next several years, I think it's going to be very surprising if some of these dirtiest companies um, by the way, they're not all bad and they're not all run by evil capitalists. Who might know better than the rest where the problems are to fix? Um, I don't think um, ESG has all the answers. And I do think um, there will be some old fashioned dirty companies that could be part of the solution. So look, I, like you, I have a bunch of kids. I'm more interested than anybody in this planet being the safest, healthiest, happiest place for many generations to come. I'm just not eliminating from consideration that we know exactly who the problem solvers are going to be. And I have an open mind and the math says we can get paid pretty well to solve some of these problems. Sure. And I agree with you. I mean, and those energy companies have, have definitely uh, been beaten up in, in recent years. I think the first company we ever talked about Ryan uh, on Twitter. And I think this is how we met, but like we were talking about Domino's pizza, um, you know, and like, I think it was a comment that I put that it's the only place I can get dinner for my entire family for, for about 20 bucks. And then you were showing me your, your annoyed uh, souvenir that you, or memorabilia that, that you got on eBay uh, before we started recording. But like, uh, so let's talk about Domino's. Well, as, a, as is often the case, and one of the reasons we collide in a lot of fun rabbit holes, um, and that was actually a, a historically um, successful growth stock for many years, um, that is, is a phenomenal success story. And, and the rabbit hole I happen to be on, believe it or not, was just the history of the founder and how you and me are going to make sure our kids have uncomfortable summer jobs like right. we grew up doing and, yeah, yeah. What, and what in the world has changed between that generation and that story and his story that I humbly shared and learned from, again, this wasn't a stock recommendation or a pick. It was me learning and along the way. And that's just the nerds. If we happen to be able to figure out some places to invest or that opens up another door to another rabbit hole, I just happen to find that research so much fun. And I think that's what makes your group so special too. You can genuinely capture the excitement, the optimism. This can be a lot of fun, the work. And that's wildly underrated business idea, by the way, in any industry. So Domino's, and, and, I, and I love that heritage, that culture. I mean, I think something like 95% out of all the franchise owners start out as delivery guys. Yeah. Yeah. They um, start off in store. Yep. And yep. And they became such an unbelievable turnaround story, which was the reason I shared that. I mean, they were 
universally voted, and this is many years ago, as the absolute worst pizza. And they not only dug in and said, how can we improve this? They literally rented out billboard space in Times Square showing they were the worst and tracking their progress. Humility is a secret ingredient <laughs> and that caught right. my attention. The growth did, but then when they started turning into a free cash flow generating machine, this is a good example of, I mean, you're not cherry picking one of the better yielding stocks and, and the holdings we have. It's one of the lower yielding. Right. But when you're growing your dividend at 15 or 20% a year, your dividend in five years or 10 years could be higher than that big utility or higher yielding stock is today that never grows. So that only one or 2%, the math is quite clear. You could have a 5% dividend in a few years or more. I mean, we have, and, and you probably do too, some of these great growth stocks, if you just, if the stock goes nowhere, if the stock market stopped going up, I mean, you can have double digit your dividend yield for the rest of your life and growing. That's appealing and overlooked math. That's why we call it the mailbox math. And, and it, it is, it, it was such a great story. Like, um, like I was actually listening to this, this podcast series on, on Domino's and, and like their history. And so like in 07, 08, um, uh, they were already kind of struggling. Um, consumers weren't liking their pizza. And there was like a very early on like social media uh, scandal they were involved with because two of their workers recorded a video of them like doing like horrible, disgusting things to a pizza. And like the story is like that pizza actually never was delivered. Like these workers were just making like a, a, a prank video, like, uh, but it was like blowing their nose in the pizza or something, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and so like online, like people were like, well, the comments on like that video were just brutal. I mean, just completely brutal. Like uh, this probably just tastes like any of their other pizzas that go out and things like that. And, and that's when they knew they, they really had to change things. And like, you have to give them credit for that marketing campaign, just how they were like, like they would hunt down customers who've left them really negative reviews and like say, try our new pizza, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, and, and that, that he's, he was a servant leader. The, the, the guy who gets a lot of credit for that, Patty Doyle. I mean, he started out, yeah. the, that post started out like I, he was a busboy, and, and it's how you take care of people. He didn't start out as a CEO and it was also a post to inspire folks and, and to give permission maybe to young investors or young workers that are sitting around with a bunch of empty pizza boxes trying to figure out the next great idea. And it might be the empty cardboard <laughs> yeah. box right, right next to you. Right, right, right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. But it's a great story. I mean, even today, like in your neck of the woods, they're experimenting with autonomous delivery, like pizzas, like with like this robot with like a pizza warmer in it. And they're like, uh, they're delivering pizzas that way. But you know, they never, what, what I love about that company is they're never afraid to experiment with things like that and and some of them are, are probably more gimmicky than than practical but um I, I i love the experimentation that they do uh with just like different delivery techniques and their app They're, they have a a zero a zero click app which uh before we moved a few years ago my wife would use because she knew exactly where in her commute to hit this button uh, so that when she passed by the store, she knew the pizzas would be ready. And it's just like you save your preferred order from your preferred store and you just click the app and it starts a timer. And when the timer goes down, it just automatically orders your your saved order. You know, and she knew exactly where on the highway to hit that. And she wouldn't have to look at it again and know she could just stop on the 
stop at the, at the nearest store when she was coming home and, and the, the pieces would be ready. It really turned into a technology and efficiency marvel more than a, a, a pizza recipe that worked. And I, some of the best advice I've ever gotten as a business operator is give me an execution guy or gal over an idea guy or gal any day because they're sure. far fewer. They're, they're very, very low supply. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another store, uh, another company you hold is Broadcom, which is a, a technology company, but it's, it's often overlooked, um, you know, and it's like kind of like one of those sneaky uh, semiconductor companies that you don't hear much about, but has delivered great returns for shareholders over the years. Well, this is a, this is a, a, a happens to be a story near and dear to my heart, but I, I'm loyal to no um, background. And, and I think it's a great example of companies that can change. Um, and, and I'm just uh, interested in the math, but the fact that I go a little bit uh, ways back and it's a, it's a good example. I'm, I'm sitting in 1999, early in my career, literally on the edge of the pin, about to pop the technology bubble, could have only known this in hindsight. Obviously, I didn't there that day when I'm in my fancy Wall Street suit trying to impress a new client, completely oblivious at that time. I didn't, I'm a Texas kid. I didn't know what Buck's restaurant was sitting there in Woodside where all of these companies that we now read books about were formed or a lot of them. The Tesla prototype was in the parking lot. All of these different internet companies were on napkins all around these tables. And I, I'll never forget this, the, the, the morning because the humility that I was sitting with is a lesson I've still learned and something you and I have in common. And it is absolutely a good um <laughs> a good piece of any investor's playbook. That guy that day said, I've had enough. I know I need to diversify. I know I need to balance. I was fortunate to be recommended um, because I, I knew other things besides technology, which is all he was surrounded by. And he had just sold his company to Broadcom. And that was at the height before they all crashed. And that day, the largest private real estate transaction right up the hill consummated and what we now knew and looking back was I, I was that was the day um, that that particular uh, bubble started to burst and if I, had I been a believer in technology or semiconductors or dug my hills he, hills in, heels in and just studied an industry or stayed um, biased in any way, over that period of time, I'm not sitting here with you today. Instead, just having an open mind and being curious. And many, many, many years later, that same company appearing through some of our quantitative screens that just push us candidates that this math is changing. This business might be changing before people recognize it. And they turned into a cash flow generating machine. Recently qualifying in one of our stock tournaments that, that we hold when, when these tickers stop moving around on Saturday mornings when I get a couple of quiet hours, um, you know, it was a, it was a five tool prospect, as I like to say, when it, it exceeded expectations, bottom line, top line, raised guidance, and yet was still cheaper than the market and outperforming their sector, identifying possibly an uncrowded and still misunderstood story. And they're not alone. Um, but to answer your question, that was, that's one that I was, I was smiled at when I saw come through the tournament um, 18 years later that I got to reunite. And I think more than the stock should be a lesson to anybody that, that 
active management has a lot of um, upside and open mind and the fact that companies change. As long as you have strict sell disciplines, that's the best of active management, that things change and you should have buy disciplines too. And let's talk about one more uh, of your holdings. And that's, we actually talked about this today on our show was tractor supply. And you told me before we started recording, they didn't close one store for one day during the pandemic. Is, is that true? That's true um, to the best of my knowledge. And, the, and we did have it confirmed. I wasn't at every one of those stores. <laughs> I, have, I, I do have a house full of pets and people. Um, and we do serve a lot of gentlemen farmers um, that it's funny, the, the, the folks that work their tails off to get off the farm down here in the South. <laughs> and when they have a few bucks, their fondest wish is to get the heck out of the city and to go buy a little farm. Right, right, um, right. And that rural movement in some parts of the country, I guess, might still be chuckled at. Um, but if you look at the migration patterns and if you study the U-Haul indicators like we do, it's real. And I, I don't like to ascribe any extra credit or even feel comfortable talking about these these pandemic stories and what was pulled ahead or pulled forward. I think some of these facts that were in place and desires that were in place, the fact that they may have been accelerated and more people found out about all these people moving to the country uh, certainly may have made, made it a more popular story, but this was underway for a lot of good reasons. And I'm here in Houston and, you know, several million of my closest friends and mosquitoes um, and this swamp, there's a lot of good reasons that people like to get into rural, less crowded spaces. And these stores are doing phenomenally well, serving folks with some of the simplest of needs. Um, and, and that was, I, I think they, they have a lot of room to go still too. I think um, open spaces and migration patterns in this country over the rest of our lifetimes is going to be fascinating and it, they won't be the only ones to benefit from it, but you need to start drawing circles around, you know, not just the, the, the big bank in the city, but who's the only bank out here, who those businesses. Um, and, and a lot of them, we drive right by, as you said. Um, and, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you got to be stuck at one of those, actually, I shouldn't say stuck. I don't know if one of your family members listening, but whatever the <laughs> event was, the family, the wedding or keep your, keep your eyes open. <laughs> right. Well, so we, uh, so I was at, a, I was at a niece's wedding in, Killen, Alabama, uh, which is in the northwest corner of the state, as best as I understand the geography. And so it was a lot of driving off the interstate, um, you know, and it's a place we wouldn't have gone to visit normally. But you know what? We had a great time. And then after the wedding, we went to Lake Guntersville, which is also in northern Alabama. And again, a place we would have never, ever gone to, like if it wasn't for this wedding. And yet again, like we had a fantastic time. And so like, but driving back, let's so you'll be interested in this. So driving back, we went through all the country roads and things like that. And, and you, you, you start to see these stores that like aren't in my local area, but you'll be interested in this, Ryan. So it, there's a 2018 Gallup poll that asked like where Americans would like to live. 27% more than any other category uh, said they want to live in a rural area. And only 15% of Americans actually live in a rural area. So not only was it the most popular answer, it was also the biggest gap of people who want to live in a rural area and um, the people who, you know, uh, uh, who want to live, but like who actually live. And now with remote work, it's not just people retiring now and like saying like, I can go live in a rural area now. 
Um, it's also like people like saying, like, I can take a little bit of less salary and still earn an income. And I'm going to move like, you know, I can sell my expensive house in the city or the suburbs and move out to like the, the country and, and buy a house for a lot less and, and, you know, and live a better life, the life I want to live. And so tractor supply, I mean, for those who don't know, um, it sells like agricultural supplies, like, you know, people who move out of the country, they want to have a chicken coop and they need chicken feed and, and the supplies to build a chicken coop. And so it sells all those things and it sells like tools and, and things like that. And um, Poland Capital, one of my favorite money manager groups uh, that I like to follow, they have this concept called a moat attack. And so they said, you can never really know a company's moat until it's been attacked by a competitor and withstood the attack. And so they bring up a few examples. One of the examples they have brought up before is that Home Depot tried to make, uh, try to like launch a concept that's similar to tractor supply about a decade or so ago. And it failed utterly. It utterly failed. Like track, you know, track, they, Home, Home Depot abandoned it after a year or two and, and tractor supply has done at an, a marvelous job, not only rewarding shareholders, but obviously really fi- filling this, this underserved need. And, and, and I think it's, if you're in a big city or are not familiar with these drives, it's also one of my favorite opportunities in the stock market when you find them. It's a misleading name. You know, that's what my co-host said today. So we were talking about it today because they have a horrible name. So so anybody, especially stuck in a city or in an apartment um, that you may have changed your buying and behavior habits over the last year, did your pet. Right. So they happen to have a gigantic pet business. You know, another misleading name we were talking about earlier. so, So Smuckers is secretly a giant pet food beneficiary. Um, a lot of folks not only took better care of their pets over the last year, but they have more of them than ever before. And I think there is a common, slow, secular theme of the beauty of simplicity. And, and when you are walking your dog out in the country um, and, and things are slowing down a little bit, which is, golly, harder than ever to do. Um, but I think I think you bring up a good point. I mean, that, that's how, believe it or not, I'm the worst retail analyst in the world. I, I don't shop. I don't know any... So again, the numbers have to come, but Best Buy was another one. If Amazon can't kill Best Buy, that's when all of a sudden I was like, wait, they should have been in the, if anybody should have been in the crosshairs and Tractor Supply was another great example. I mean, the Walmarts, the big boxes, those specialty niches um, mm, and and room to expand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Ryan, let's end on this. Um, When we first started talking I think it came up that you are a father of five. Is that correct? Yes. And I, you're, I think you're the only one on Fintwit then that has more kids than I do. So I'm a father of four. And it caught As me I off. Said, there's, there's no different level of crazy from three, four, five. So you, you are, there's no difference between the, the two of us. Four and five, there's no, we are full zone defense. Yeah. There's no difference. Well, what's that joke? There's like an old joke. Like when you have one kid, you can double team them. And when you have two kids, you can play man on man defense. When you have three kids, you play you play zone coverage, and when you have more than three kids, it's just prevent. You just try not to give up any of the big things. <laughs> and, and hey, no joke, and you, you, we've we've swapped stories about this too, and I share them when I can. Um, they're some of my favorite little analysts too, and I don't say that cutely. I say that when something, and, and especially with teenagers, that something's annoying me, 
um, like video games did five years ago. <laughs> I'm going to dive down that rabbit hole. I, I'm, right. I'm going I'm to figure out what's going on here. And, and so what I've done is make sure that they have to also make a few of their own selections. Um, and sometimes you can end up making more money with your kids than you try to do for them. Right, right. So it's that old, it's like that Peter Lynch, like Peter Lynch used to say, like, to know what stores he wanted to invest in, he'd just take his wife and daughters to the mall and, and see now what stores. That's right. I remember I was a Lynch. Yeah. Now it's just follow them to the couch and see what they're doing. Right, right. Or what apps they have on their phone or yeah, what apps they spend the most time with or, or what they're playing for sure. For sure. So that like, this is kind of what I was going to ask you, like, how... How do you teach your kids about, about investing? Uh, this is something I've asked a lot of people. And so it's, it's something I think uh, a lot of listeners are very interested in. Uh, you know, I grew up, my parents were great parents, but they didn't know anything about money. And so like I learned at a much later age than I would have liked about investing and, and, and saving things away. Um, so how do you teach your kids about well, money and investing? I, lo- I love talking about this with you all the time. And I've learned as much and think, um, think that you're a, a heck of a father in person too. That's probably what I like most about you. Um, the fact that we spend the rest of our waking hours some, down some of the same rabbit holes doesn't hurt either. But I think, you know, that the chapter, that book, um, and he probably had the hardest time doing the sketch for me, um, Carl Richards, the great artist. Um, I think one of the best lessons, and, and so, so the this book is, again, how I invest my money. The sketch is... Um, and I'll make uh, any, if you, if you want to give one to your listener uh, or in a listener, I, I will share one for, for your group. If you want to do some sort of, uh, contest of the best kid investment idea or however you want to do that. My, my job as a dad is I want to make sure this should not be about the investing of the stock picks. So the sketch for me is the, it's the work that's more important than the investing. And I, I think too many parents are skipping that step. I know they are as investors. So the best way we can do this is at the supper table and talk about this stuff. That's number one. So my favorite game there is of all the different great ideas and what I need to learn and stay young on like video games we talked about. My favorite question at any age is, will you try to name, there's five of them there. Everybody's got to name one business that will still be in the same business when you are in my chair as a dad. That's a harder question than even most professional money managers would like to believe if they really think about it. There's far fewer of those than there are game-changing ideas, the game unchangers, as I call them. Um, but then the, the, the harder, sweatier, grittier way I like to teach them that we're doing this week. So I'll get back to you on how well it's worked. It may be a miserable failure, who knows? But I said, I'm going to back you, um, not on a stock idea, but we're going to do a power washing company. And we walk through the math of buying the equipment and the payback. And this isn't, that's, you know, when we, when we do lemonade stands in my family, it ain't the revenues are the earnings. No, no, there's a cost right, right. of goods sold. Right. Yeah. 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 We're going to give some away, keep some, but we're going to walk through the whole actual business. Um, I think hard work is the secret missing ingredient for more kids than when we were kids, because all it's going to do is make investing even more appealing. The idea that, wait a minute, I can get paid while I sleep now. I want to get back to the dinner table and listen to that old man talk about stocks. Cause now I know how hard it was to get that dollar. <laughs> right. Dollars are not easy to come by for sure. For sure. Um, well, that's a great way uh, to end it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, if listeners are interested in learning more about you, where can they find you? 
the same place you and I hang out, as you mentioned earlier, um, Twitter at Ryan Kruger, ROI. Um, and by the way, that ROI is not the tradition. That's my tip of the cat. We flip Wall Street's version of ROI, which is what's in it for them, return on investment and keeping assets. That's my polite way of saying this should be turned upside down. Income, then opportunity, and what is the reason to invest? That's what that ROI means. Um, we're at Freedom Day Solutions is our website, and I appreciate, I'm very grateful um, that you ask about the ETF. That's freedomdaydividend.com, um, symbol MBOX, and my personal biggest account, so you know where I will be after this and, and before we talked and what I'm working for. So uh, it, it's an honor to share that with you, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.